Um, I remember the first time I heard my friend Greg that I met in seminary, first time I, I, I heard him say the words, we have a king, um, and I thought it was just a corny thing to say. He's a friend I met in seminary. He's one of the most thoughtful and intense people that I've ever known, has had a profound impact on my life in so many ways over the years. And the first time I had him say, sort of out of the blue, we have a king. I thought it was intense, uh, but not all that thoughtful, and I just thought it was a corny thing to say. But he would say it a lot in the course of life. He would say it when celebrating a provision. He would say it when he was lamenting an injustice or a loss. It was at times for him a statement of strong confidence. We have a king. And other times it was uh, an expression of shaken hope, almost like we, we have a king, you know, like what happened, which is valid because sometimes to us it doesn't look or feel like we do. But the more I heard this phrase on the friend of my lips, the more I realized that it wasn't at all corny. It was actually incredibly Christian for him to say this over and over again. And that's what our text this morning push us to believe, that we have a king and we have a good king. And it's something that we want to know and that we want to embrace in our lives. Why? Why is it important for us? Well, if you lived in Ukraine right now, what might you be longing for? Or if you woke up this morning in Gaza, what might you find yourself longing for? Or here in the United States, if you're paying attention uh, politically, what might you be longing for? Really, you're longing for, in all these places, a good king, uh, a leader with the power and the wisdom and the character to do what is right. And that is important for us to feel, I think, this morning, to feel those other places around the world where it's palpable, that longing for a good king. Because sometimes it's hard for us to relate to. We can sort of have a fairy tale-ish uh, idea about the pomp and circumstance of a king, or we watch the coronation in England, we think, isn't that cool? But practically, does it really matter? And so it's, it's important to feel these places where it's very, very important, a longing, a hunger for that good king. And that's what these texts that are assembled for us on Christ the King Sunday, they confront us with the reality that God in Jesus is indeed king. Right? Think about what was read to us. Ezekiel 34 has this shepherd Im imagery that is used to sort of help us understand the nature of this leadership. But if you just go a little bit out of our context, down to verse 23, it talks about that God would send his, uh, David, his servant, to lead his people, which ties the shepherding to kingship and ultimately to the person and work of Jesus. Psalm 95 is very overt. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. Incidentally, it also uses shepherding imagery to help us understand the, the nature of that reign. And then verse, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about there is a kingdom that Jesus reigns over that he will deliver to God his Father. And Matthew 25 sets this scene for us and says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And so we can picture that, the, the pageantry of that. And then it says, the king will say... So it's telling us Jesus is indeed the king. And each of these wants us to be glad and to celebrate that Jesus is the king. So let's do that this morning. Let's first spend some time reflecting on what these passages reveal about the nature of his kingship that is worth celebrating. We'll do that primarily from Ezekiel and 1 Corinthians 15 as they, I think, describe the nature of his reign a bit more. So a couple things here. Uh, it's a reign of, first of all, hope. 
It's a reign of hope. And we see this especially in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the best, exciting, most exciting passages in all of Scripture, in my humble opinion. And we see it's a reign of hope because it's a reign of life beyond death. And there's two ways that Paul tells us this. First of all, about resurrection, because Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. One of the greatest verses, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of what will come after him. And so his kingdom is a kingdom where resurrection has now been introduced into reality. It's, it, it, he leads his subjects into life that continues after death has seemed to end it, which is unbelievable, which is amazing. He makes possible grief with hope, right? This is what Thessalonians calls us to often talked about at Christian funerals. We grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. Why? Because Jesus is raised from the dead, the first fruits of a kingdom that includes life after death. And so now our services can be celebration of life services when we say goodbye to those who have deceased because it's not just wailing and saying goodbye. It's knowing the hope that is in this kingdom that Jesus is the king of. Thanks to Jesus and his kingdom, a couple of weeks ago when I heard the news about the death of a man in the Chicago area who's become a friend of, of Langham, a supporter of Langham over the years, but was also a, a friend of my grandmother, one of the first things I thought of when I heard that he had passed is, I wonder if my grandma has seen him in glory yet. Now, I don't, I don't know what the disembodied stage between death and full resurrection is like. That's for another sermon another time that Rick can answer all your questions about that later. <laughs> But I love the fact that this kingdom into which Jesus brings us can spark our imaginations like that because resurrection is now a reality. And so you can think, I wonder what it was like for him to enter into that kingdom and have life after death, and maybe he talked to my grandma, and that would be kind of cool if he did. The point is that King Jesus rules over a kingdom of hope because resurrection is now a reality, and, Paul says, because there will be the death of death. Right? It's not just that resurrection is now rallied life after death, but death is going to be defeated and be no more. It will have no place in the eternal kingdom of God. It still stings now, but when it is thrown in the lake of fire, when it is finally defeated, then we can say, death, where's your sting? You're gone. You're not here anymore. And I don't know, again, what life will be like without death hanging over it, but I really like the idea. I really, really like the idea of that. So we rejoice and celebrate because the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of hope. And, number two, it is a reign of care. It is a reign of care. And this is what I want to dig into Ezekiel 34 a little bit and the details that we're given here. Because here the prophet uses shepherd imagery, as I said, to reveal the nature of the kind of king that God is for his people. And I think a great summary of this is care. It's a kingdom of care, not extortion. Not self-enrichment, not taxing to get better for myself, um, but a kingdom of care where the king actually intends to care for those under his leadership. In what ways? I think there's a great picture that's painted here in Ezekiel 34. First, care in the terms of, of rescue. Verses 12 and 13, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. So they can't get out of where they are, and he goes and gets them. It's a rescue out of helplessness. It's a beautiful picture. And then it's a kingdom of the care of provision. 
if you keep reading. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the habited, inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the straight, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Do you hear all the provision in there? There's land, there's food, there's places to lie down and rest. There's the care for wounds and the place, the space and the attention to rehabilitate. It's a place of great provision. And then finally, the care in this kingdom is represented in justice. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will, I will feed them in justice. And he goes on, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? And to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Can you feel the indignation rising at the description of those who not only have enough and maybe even the best for themselves, but also then want to ruin what would be left for others. Like it's not enough you can't eat, but you have to muddy and ruin it for everybody else. Jesus is a king who doesn't cast a blind eye on stuff like that. That's the nature of his reign. The care that we get in his kingdom is that he oversees it with justice. And we know so much more about that now. We know of the rescue that he has uh, worked for us on the cross, our salvation, when we couldn't save ourselves. And we know the provision that he's made for our lives in terms of his word and his spirit and the means of grace whereby he nourishes us and the community of people that he puts us into where we can find help and we can find care and we can find rest and rehabilitation when we need it. And he is a God of justice. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom of justice will have no end. This is the care that he gives to us, his people. Now, these are not promises of an easy road. On the contrary, the scripture has promises that it won't be an easy road, right? And the fullness of the kingdom benefits are yet to come. They're not all here yet. And he promises he is with us in the meantime. In the mystery and the confusion and the not already and not yet, he's with us. And I found that when you start praying and asking and looking for ways to see his hand and know his care, sometimes he surprises you and he gives you glimpses and he gives you evidence. Not always, but sometimes he does. And the Psalms that he has given to us give us the freedom and the words to lament and cry out when we don't understand how his kingship is working itself out. And that's a rarity from a king. Not only to say, you can bring your complaints to me, but here's some words that you might want to use when you do so. He's not afraid of the challenges that we face under his kingship, but he wants to remind us, I'm a good king. I care for you with rescue and with provision and with justice in its time. And these realities of his kingdom are worth celebrating this day and every day as his people. But there's a second element in each of these texts, that as I, as I was studying them and reading through them, it surprised me. I don't know if it surprised you if you heard it this morning, too. There's a second element that is warning, right? 
Ezekiel 34, God will be the good shepherd. Woe to you who are or have been bad shepherds. Psalm uh, 95, God is a great king. Don't harden your hearts when you hear his voice. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is stewarding a kingdom for God the Father. All of his enemies will be subdued. And Matthew, Jesus the king will come and he will judge. Don't be surprised to find yourself a goat. And in case you're familiar with the current use of that term, goat here is not a good thing, okay? Just to, just to be clear. So how do we understand this good news and warning juxtaposition in these texts? I think what the scriptures are telling us is this kingdom of King Jesus, you have to take it seriously. It's, it's not pomp and circumstance. It's not a game. It's for real. And you have to take it seriously all the way through. So just to give you an example, when I was in elementary school, uh, I ran for student council vice president and then student council president, and I'm happy to tell you that I won. And um, so, yes, thank you. My slogan was, uh, be smart, vote for Bart, because it rhymes. And literally, one of the years, I can't remember which year, I, I had a ventriloquist dummy when I was a kid, don't ask. And then I brought it up on the stage with me, and I literally had the dummy say, I may be a dummy, but I'm smart enough to vote for Bart. So, and it worked, and I won. <clears throat> and I was the student council president at Bella Elementary School. And here's the thing, I did absolutely nothing. Like, I did absolutely nothing. I, I was so interested in winning the popularity contest and so uninterested in doing anything good for the school. I scheduled a meeting of the student council that I forgot to go to. That's how bad of a president that I was. And I think that's the, the point of these texts is this kingdom of Jesus is wonderful, it's great, and it's a real thing. And you have to actually take it seriously all the way through. What do we mean by that? I think in these warnings, there's a don't and a do that these warnings point to. Okay, so let's, let's look at those. First, the don't. These, these texts say to us, don't resist the reality of his reign. So Psalm 95, 7 says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as at Meribah and at Massa. Uh, what, what, what the psalm is referring to is a story in Israel's history when they cried out to God in, in anger um, after being delivered miraculously from Egypt, from slavery, through the Red Sea miraculously, right? And they get to a point where they're resting and they don't see any water. And so they say uh, to Moses and the Lord, have you let us out here to have us die of thirst? Right? And it's kind of comical, but it is indicative of how easily we question the good intentions or the ability of his reign in this kingdom. I worked with a, a coach when I coached football for a couple years. The guy I worked with, Coach Bauer, he used to always say, I got a good memory, it's just short, you know? Um, and I think that tends to be us, or at least me, when things don't look the way we imagined they would look or go according to our plans, right? I mean, sure, we're out of slavery in Egypt, but did you think about maybe something to drink? I mean, sure, you came and took on flesh and lived and died and rose again so that I can be forgiven and have a future in your perfected kingdom with you forever, but what about blank? Fill in the blank. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's something trivial. Maybe it's something incredibly profound and extremely disappointing. 
The warning here is not don't feel the difficulty of that or everything's happy, happy, happy all the time, 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 so stop thinking it's not. The warning here is don't harden your heart. The work of faith here is to trust the good intentions of his reign and his ability and wisdom to do what is best in the long game. That's, that's the call. That's the reality of living in the kingdom. And I feel like I quote this every sermon, but Romans 8, 31 and 32 is so pertinent here. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Right? That's the work of living in the reign of Jesus in the kingdom of God. Okay, he gave us his only son. He didn't spare him. He's going to give us all things. Not everything I want, not when I want it, but everything that I need when I need it. Don't harden your heart. Don't resist the reality of the kingdom by hardening your heart, hardening your heart and, and not believing that he is good and that he's with you in it. If you can take Romans 8, 30, uh, 31 and 32, and, and the end of Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith, it commends the faith of those whose lives experienced awful disappointment, like being sawn in two, right? Losing children, all these things. If you can take that, commends the faith of those and assures us that they and the ones who were triumphant in this life, like stop the mouths of lions, for example, both parties did not yet receive what was promised, right? That, which means the full payoff of this king and his kingdom is yet future. And, and somehow Paul says that the eternal glory is going to far outweigh the struggles and the sufferings, right, in the meantime. So if we can if we can take Romans 8 and we can take Hebrews 11, take all that to heart, it can help us resist hardening our hearts and help us believe the reality of his reign, trust him in and through all that has come and is here and all that might come. That's the work of faith, of not hardening our hearts, but believing the reign of this king. That's, and that's the first place of not resisting the reality. The second place, quicker, of not resisting the reality of his reign is 1 Corinthians 15 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus' reign is absolute. Any counter-authority, whether it's a king or a nation or a human heart, will not prevail against him. So to deny him or keep him, up, keep him at arm's length or even just ignore him, a good Minnesota sort of passive-aggressive atheism, is not good. Uh, reckon with him. He's a good and gracious king. And so you might be here this morning, you're, you don't count yourself a Christian. You've been visiting somebody and they drag you to church today and you're like, King Jesus, whatever. Don't let this opportunity pass without reckoning with him. I'd love to talk to you about that. Any staff here, probably most of the people in the pews would be happy to share their own wrestling with him as king. There will be prayer ministers in the back during communion if you want to talk to them about this. But don't resist the reality of his reign. That's one of the exhortations from these texts together. The other one is do, do embody the ethos of his reign. Do live out the values of his reign. And I think this comes from the warnings that we see in Ezekiel and in Matthew. Let's start with Matthew, the famous parable of the sheep and the goats, which Rick will answer all of your questions about that later as well. But I just want us to think uh, for a minute about the shock value of the parable. I, I did this in a sermon before. When we have these parables, there's a lot of stuff that's mundane and 
sort of expected to the hearers, but there's something that like really gets their attention. That's what Jesus wants us to, to think about. So what's the shock value in the parable of the sheep and the goats? That the king holds court and judges? No, that would be expected. Is it that the people judged don't know why or what they're judged for? Maybe. I was kind of thinking that was it. Then I thought about it more, and I think the shock value in the parable is that the king identifies with the least of these. The hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner, as you did it to one of the least of these, King Jesus says, you did it to me. I'm them, they're me. My kingdom is not about laud and honor and sucking up to the high and mighty and getting important yourself, climbing that ladder. What you needed from me, grace and help in your helplessness, that's what we give to others in my kingdom. That's what King Jesus says. And that's got to become second nature and instinctive, that you just do that. You see the weak and the vulnerable. You're like, that's, those are our people. That's who we care about. What do they need? And we give them that. And Ezekiel's warning is very similar. To bad shepherds, those who have been or those who will be in the context, and to fat and strong sheep who take care of themselves while depriving others of basic needs, they're in trouble because they don't care for all the sheep and especially the vulnerable ones, like Jesus the good shepherd does. So brothers and sisters, his reign is great. We celebrate it and we revel in its blessings to us. And so we take the ethos, the character of the king and his kingdom and embody it in the world so that among the people of King Jesus, people experience rescue, provision, and justice. So there's a place in the world now among the people of King Jesus where rescue, provision, and justice are experienced. We get to embody that because we know how great it is to receive that. The more we celebrate, sorry, here's the beauty of this challenging juxtaposition of celebration and warning. The key to heeding the warning is to practice the celebration. In other words, the more we celebrate and enjoy his treatment of us as the work of grace and kindness to the needy and vulnerable that it is, the more we see the least of these not as a blight, but as a brother and sister, and the more that we see caring for them not as the exception, but as the norm for Jesus' kingdom folks like us, right? They mutually reinforce one another. Celebrate the goodness of the kingdom you get. I'm the recipient of the grace of the kingdom. I give grace of the kingdom, and that's great, and I celebrate it more, and they mutually enforce one another. So may that be true for us here at Restoration, that we deeply from our hearts celebrate the greatness of our king and the kingdom that he has come to bring and because of that we embody the values of that kingdom so that there's a real place where people experience the ethos of it even now before it's come in its fullness may that be true of us here at restoration let me pray for us that that might be so king jesus thank you that you love us thank you for the hope that you have brought Thank you for the care that you give to us. Um, Help us to be people of hope and care uh, more and more and more, uh, we pray in your name. Amen.